Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Point of More Returns. I have with me my gracious co-host, Welfare. Welcome to the show. How are things going? Good, man. Good. Another day, another dollar. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be sharing some some tidbits about inflation in this episode with you. Yes, indeed. Let's get to it. So in this episode, we wanted to kind of go down the path of something that landmark that passed recently with the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. I know some of you may sit and say, well, you probably heard about some of this already you know, from the news story. Why do I want to sit here and go through a piece of legislation? Well, one of the things about legislation is that a lot of investment houses get their ideas and thesis and how they're going to set about moving about from the legislation. As a matter of fact, the venture capital and private equity industry were born out of legislation loopholes. And so every time a piece comes out, they're mining, Wall Street's mining, private equity's mining legislation to see what the loopholes are, how to advise their clients and where the capital is going to go. And so here at Point of More Returns, we're a little different. We're just going to follow down the same path. You just follow where the smart money goes and try to ascertain where things are. Again, point of advice, we're not accountants. We are financial professionals, but we ask you to go seek the advice of a competent accountant, attorney, or your financial professional before acting investment decisions. And with that said, let's kick it off here. So welfare, let's start from reading a summary of the Inflation Reduction Act here. Basically, the Reduction Act of 2022 will make a historic down payment on deficit reduction to fight inflation, invest in domestic energy production and manufacturing, and reduce carbon emissions by roughly 40% by 2030. The bill will also finally allow Medicare to negotiate for prescription drug prices and extend the expanded Affordable Care Act program for three years through 2025. The new proposal for the fiscal year 2022 budget reconciliation bill will invest approximately $300 billion in deficit reduction and $369 billion in energy security and climate change programs over the next 10 years. Additionally, the agreement calls for a comprehensive permitting reform legislation to be passed before the end of the fiscal year. Permitting reform is essential to unlocking domestic energy and transmission projects, which will lower costs for consumers and help us meet our long-term emissions goals. So welfare, when you hear all that, what's the initial reaction? What comes to mind for you? Yeah, it's a it's a lot of information. So I'm I'm sitting here and I'm thinking with the perspective of the regular US citizen, average person, small business owner, investor, you know, with assets less than, you know, a million. All of these are like a bunch of words. And what I want to know at the end of end of the day is is it impacting my taxes? Am I getting any credits? Is it helping me? Is it hurting me? And I don't think, you know, the regular person is going through reading like legislation. So I think that's one of the reasons why we want to talk about it to kind of unpack it and just give some key points of what to be mindful of when we're looking at this Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. And so the first thing that comes to mind is the electric vehicle credit that is included in the bill of $7,500 for a new vehicle and $4,000 for a used vehicle. However, it comes with a stipulation, which if you're 
an investor and you're investing like a pick fund or a large capital source could be of a boon to you. But what happens is that it incentivizes domestic manufacturing and mining. So basically 40% of that electric vehicle's product of parts and components have to be mined and manufactured domestically. So as you sit there and think about that, that obviously means that you're going to have to invest in factories and building out capacity to start doing these EV vehicles. So from that, as an investor welfare, what comes to mind? How would you take advantage of something like that? Pertaining to the the electric vehicles, well, I think we would, not to nerd out in, in finance, but I would have to do some type of analysis to determine like the price of the electric vehicle versus the non-electric and then look at what the actual like benefits are, financially speaking, and weigh it. Like, is it is it worth the cost? Because if the electric vehicle costs more and the benefits don't necessarily equate to like price reduction small or large enough or if it's like really not big enough to overcome what the the cost is for the, just a regular like vehicle then like is it worth my time so i think it i think the bill is is trying to incentivize people to really think more about the environment and like the carbon footprint and like fossil fuels and all of that and I'm assuming that they have like tried to put pen to paper and figure out the numbers to to make it more attractive to get more people to to purchase the EVs but I haven't actually done the analysis on it but just as a consumer that would be my mindset to try to figure out if it's you know really worth me purchasing one of these vehicles. Yeah, and not just for purchasing the vehicle itself but also with the investment that has to go in outfitting these factories to be able to ramp up production and meet that demand, right? So it's one of those chicken and egg dilemmas, right? Because right now there's a story I saw earlier where they were, the EV manufacturers were saying most of the vehicles wouldn't qualify right now under that, that provision. So they're going to have to invest in here and putting up the production first, I believe, in order just to, to get it out there. But the thing that you have to wonder is if will they invest before the demand is there or will they wait until people are starting to buy vehicles and then they'll start investing. So th that's to come to see. I wouldn't have, I, I guess if I was to weigh and bet, I would probably bet on the investment in the factory first due to that just seems the way that they want things to be politically and also it's good for their marketing as well. Now, as a real estate investor, I think that could be an opportunity for you because you may want to start monitoring governments and seeing who's starting to receive parties from Toyota or from Ford or whoever's looking at plant sites. And those plant sites that are possible to be built for factories or things like that should also increase investment for housing prices and demand in around those areas. So that could be an opportunity for a real estate investor, right? Or am I thinking about this wrong? No, that's amazing. That's a really good point of 
just trying to figure out where the demand is going to be, where the development is going to be based on the rise in production of like these facilities to build these vehicles. It's definitely an investment opportunity that's worth looking into. So what we're describing is investment portion of what we're like trying to be forward looking and what you can potentially invest in based on this act. And then also like the impact of a small business owner or just a taxpayer and the impact on your income. So it's, it's twofold of what we're really trying to, to describe in, the, in these situations. But going back to answer your question, I mean, specifically in real estate, I mean, I think it's a great idea. It's just trying to get that information and trying to time it correctly and get the right neighborhoods, get in the right communities to where you, you can actually get in on the ground floor and get the boom before they actually start to like break ground with some of these factories. Right. Now, the other thing that I would want to pose to you is what else do you think could be ramifications from this, right? So they're starting to want to get the electric vehicle market. It's already starting to do better. I think it was, I can't remember the stats for sure, but you definitely know that more vehicles are being purchased today than, than were a couple of years ago, right? And so with this, they're trying to increase that number even more, right? So if I'm going to the vehicle dealership and I'm looking at a gas powered Tesla, I mean, an electric Tesla versus a gas powered SUV, and a dealer comes to me and says, hey, not only with this Tesla, you can get $7,500 off in addition to your trade-in and whatnot. So it just makes it a more attractive purchase. Is the U.S. even ready for that type of demand to be put on the road? I mean, imagine what that's going to do for the grid. We don't have the charging stations yet. Could the government be getting ahead of itself? Could we be getting the auto industry ahead of itself before it's actually ready? What do you think about that? I mean, pretty much every, <laughs> every, especially in the tech field, it's like the infrastructure is never there, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's very seldom there. Or even if it is, you know, depending on how advanced the demand is for whatever the product is, there is a, a, a large shift that, that has to happen, whether it's additional legislation, like new bills that are coming through that, that change or people's changing, like what they do with business or like their purchasing decisions. So no, to your point, do I think everything's ready and built out? No, but on the flip side, I don't think they should wait, right? Like if you're thinking about climate change and you're thinking about the reduction of like fossil fuels and the impact of oil and gas and those industries, which we haven't even talked about, but that's like another thing of like oil and gas, like what are, what are the impacts there specifically to oil and gas companies? But I think in terms of the infrastructure with the charging stations, like what do you do with the batteries and like the gas stations where they convert and all this type of stuff, like homes, like are eco homes going to be built like more with like charging in your, in your own garage or like at, at your apartment complex, those things, I think it'll eventually come, but I think it'll continue to be built out as the demand. And like, they're only going to build it more based on the continuation of people looking to purchase or like the interest has to be there. Correct. And lastly, I mean, what other ancillary businesses do you think could spring up as a result of this? I guess I could go first. I mean, 
when I was looking at it, the first thing I thought is hey, maybe some advisory on it, walking people through on how to get the tax credit. But then I was like, no, you know, dealer will take care of that. There, anything to help sell, they'll they'll probably take care of that themselves. But maybe there's something along the lines of helping people locate vehicles that qualify since there's not so many of them out there right now, being able to, you know, not waste your time calling around all day, trying to find a vehicle that qualifies. I imagine that could possibly be a nightmarish headache, right? Or something along that lines. Another thing, I'm, I'm just spitballing an idea that I think could probably maybe work is just going around and having I guess the being able to help get parts, right? And, and I don't mean like for you to repair like your vehicle, but for like some of these dealers who may want to sell one of used vehicles and it didn't really qualify initially, but then you could switch out some of the parts and then with the new parts inside of it, it would qualify for the 40% manufactured in the U.S. Not entirely sure how that would work. Maybe it has to be original manufactured. I imagine after driving it, some of the parts are changed out and the pro threshold probably drops then. But I'm sure that for it to qualify, maybe you could say, hey, we switched out the chassis and we put a U.S. chassis in or some nuts or something like that. But those are just two things that are on my mind. Have you any thoughts around that or? So you're saying like a repair refurbish type auto mechanic play in terms of like the need for like the EVs changing. So I definitely could foresee that in the future. And again, I, I mentioned tech earlier, but the whole, like there's literally an app for everything, right? There's an app for that. There's an app for that. <laughs> there are going to be apps for like locate your closest charging station, locate, you know, the closest dealer that like there'll probably be an app to like, you can scan a barcode and look at the vehicle to determine like what the tax credit is. Like it'll be an app to like do all of the calculations for you type thing. I think that's probably the easiest and quickest like play. I think that would, that would start. And it may even be out there for all I know. Like this isn't like EVs. I haven't personally looked at purchasing an EV in any like recent times, but some of this may actually be out, but that's just what is what comes to mind is, then like battery companies, right? I think we may have talked about that on one of the the auto pod, the, the auto podcasts, like with the like a chip maker or a battery maker, like those may also be like investment opportunities with the influx of like the demand for like EVs as well. I hear that. Sounds sounds like it's gonna be an interesting time moving forward with that. Up next, the one of the things I may not be as immediate when I first mentioned it, but I think we'll have some implications is also they have a provision that's going to basically eliminate big tax avoiders. And what I mean by that is that if you earn more than a billion dollars, you're going to have a 15% minimum tax. And there's like a number of companies that come to mind like Amazon and whatnot that have been avoiding their fair share, if not to be political, but 
as we know, corporate tax rates about 21% and they've been playing well below that. So they're not going to be able to avoid that moving forward. But the reason why I think that's going to have some long-term ramifications is that it's going to affect their spending. It's going to affect policy and how they operate. And so you have a tax bill that you can no longer avoid and you were spending to, in order to avoid it. And you know, well, no matter what we do, we're still going to have to pay this. You're probably going to conserve some capital so you can meet your tax payment. And in addition, it just doesn't make sense to burn the cash anymore since you're going to get hit anyway. That said, what happens to the small businesses that Amazon is spending with? Does some of that trickle down to them and who's going to be pruned or cut or fall into that? I don't know. I mean, there's just, you have to go through the list and see which businesses it would be that, that benefit from some of that, I guess, what you would call income reduction spending. And I think that will have some play in things moving forward. Do you have any thoughts to share on that or? Yeah, absolutely. Again, like really, really great call out. So before I even get to the the small business owner, let's let's talk about like the impact from a corporate level, right? Mm-hmm. So right. when when corporations practice, I don't want to say tax avoidance, but like let's just say tax reduction, what happens is like they can conserve the cash or they can put put it towards like acquisition targets, meaning companies that they want to acquire, they put it in what they call CapEx or cap, capital expenditures, like other investment ideas. It could be towards innovation. It could be building out like more facilities. It's a lot of, it's a lot of things that can be done with that additional tax savings that, that are being done. So if they end up having to pay more taxes, then that reduces the amount that they can allocate towards their CapEx. So in terms of the corporations themselves, they may have to be a little bit more prudent about the way that they are spending their money. They may have to be a little bit more conservative about how they're managing managing the, the capital that they do have available. So not to be the pessimist, but what usually happens in companies in general, I'm not talking about any one company in particular, but what we do know is when their costs go up, what usually happens is they increase the costs and the consumers like you and I end up having to pay more for these goods and services. So oftentimes and not, that usually is what happens. I mean, I rarely see like companies just continue to take on additional costs without like price increases. But, you know, I'll flip it back to you just to see what exactly your thoughts on it. Like maybe there's a different way of them approaching it, but usually it's just inflated costs. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And one other point I want to add to that is what you brought up, which I didn't mention, is that they're going to crack down on the double reporting. So where you sometimes would have a company report one set of numbers to investors and then a different set of numbers to the IRS, they're cracking down on that. They're not going to allow that anymore. So you're just going to have one set of books that kind of goes with both, I presume. And that's going to be interesting. But I imagine it will tie back to the 1 billion, at least 15% minimum tax that you paid. And 
they'll have it reflected inside of that. But that will probably have some fluctuation in stock prices moving forward as an equity guy yourself, which also I want to touch on too, since you're an equity guy, is that they're also extending a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks itself, which as we know is one of the common ways companies use to manipulate their price or get the price to stay at a certain level so they can use it as acquisition currency. That doesn't sound like much at first. I mean, 1% of a price, but you got to remember what we're talking about here is how much they're spending out on these stock buybacks. And so just that 1% excess tax can make a difference and will probably reduce the amount of stock buybacks that are being made or have some type of effect if they still want to buy it at a certain level, they just bite the bullet and, and pay the tax. Are there anything that you think that, you know, as an equity investor that you may would want to look out for there or? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So let's break down like the stock buybacks. Like, why is this a big deal? So the way like a stock buyback works is a corporation, they see that their stock is performing at a certain level. And they feel that, they feel strongly like leadership, like C-suite, the corporate executives, they feel that their price is really undervalued. So what they'll do is they'll go buy, like I'm just making up a number, like a million shares and remove those shares available on the market at that, at that particular price. And because there are less shares available, it increases the actual share value per the the price per share. So it is a way to, the word manipulate is like kind of deemed derogatory, so to, so to speak, but it's a way to manipulate the stock price in terms of like increasing it without necessarily doing anything operationally to increase the value. It's been common practice. I don't know, probably as long as the stock market has been going on, I haven't checked the details on that. So don't quote me, but like stock buybacks have been in existence for a really long time. So the reason why I think the, the government is looking to like crack down on it is because it increases executive pay with the buybacks. But I mean, it does help share, shareholders to a degree, but I think there's, I guess the government is kind of looking at it like, okay, you're not necessarily doing anything to increase like employees or like the average person. So like, let's put a, let's put a tax on it to kind of disincentivize like them from doing that. But I would kind of love your take on like, why do you think in this particular bill they're opting to like tax on the, the buybacks? Well, just quite simply, it's the inflation reduction aspect of the bill here, right? So basically if you've got too many dollars chasing too few assets, you have inflation and you don't have enough dollars chasing too many assets, you don't. And so the way I looked at this thing in total, it's they've got a part that's production. So they're putting more assets out into the marketplace to that should have a deflationary effect, or at least quell some of the inflation. And then this is taking some of the capital out of it from what it looks like, because the company companies won't be spending like they were before. Uh, the stock buybacks won't be there. So the acquisition currency is not going to be as ro 
frothing as robust. So those two things are some levers that are pretty ingenious, I think, to to get a tamper on some of this stuff that that doesn't really hurt your average day consumer, at least at that level. Now there are some things in here that that are troubling, I think, that we could touch on with the last couple of minutes here. One with the tax part of it, right? So one of the provisions that jumped out that you've probably heard in the press is about the 87,000 IRS agents that are being hired That's right. to go out and basically police uh, us. Now, it's interesting that they're spending that much to go after IRS agents. So the thing is, like, who are they going to be targeting with this? Well, it, it looks like they're really trying to go after people receiving Venmo, PayPal, Cash App payments, and then disclosing that like zero income, like it was just you know, a repayment for dinner or something like that, when it was actually a payment for a service or a good that they sold. Another thing is that you know small businesses between the thresholds of 500000 to $5 million are also probably now going to be audited the, the same eight to nine percent standard that you see with wealthy people and also people who report no income, basically. So, and then just about any gig economy worker is now probably going to be going to be a little bit more scrutinized underneath this deck, which is a huge, huge amount of people to try to go after for closing and pay for some of this stuff in the bill. Now, the thing I want to also pay attention to is that also, which probably, you know, as a real estate investor or, you know, a small business owner who has a physical location, the way that they've got like these LLCs, right? They've had a lot of little scammy LLCs that have been popping up. And the LLC scam practices uh, related to like foreclosures and tax for anonymity purposes is one of the reasons for the recent real estate boom, because people were setting up these LLC scams and able to go out and acquire real estate and hide it and things like that. And so they're going to be trying to crack down on those shelters. And I think when the crackdown happened, you know, the government does seem to oftentimes have a chance to overextend. So unless you're entirely, you know, W-2 paid out, you're probably going to make some, if you're speaking with your accountant, just make sure that you have enough in case an audit may come down because the chances, the likelihood of it have gone up tremendously. and they are going to have to pay for this somehow. So just be on the lookout for that. If you have any thoughts you want to share on that? Yeah, thanks. Okay, well, you have any thoughts you want to share on that welfare? Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, I mean, long story short, they're trying to crack down on the underreporting. Like that's <laughs> that's the crux of it. Government is, maybe they did some type of analysis to determine like, hey, we're missing out on X, Y, Z for people underreporting on their taxes and we're trying to solicit more agents to go after like this this in the in the tax return arena where we're missing out on that. So to your point, I mean, 
probably it really is easy to like underreport like using these apps or whatnot. But like I think what what the potential <clears throat> shakeout of all of this is is <clears throat> excuse me, like more small businesses are gonna be susceptible, or not even small businesses, but people, you know, that don't necessarily all have like W2 income, they're gonna be potentially more susceptible to audits or just if you're a small business owner, like take care of your reporting, your receipts, uh, your income, make sure everything is properly reported. And again, I'm not an accountant, so please check with your accountant and your financial advisor. But those are things to be mindful of. I mean, there's a change, so you just have to be prepared, long story short. Right. And again, I just want to preface that yet, with the 87,000, we do have to be cognizant that obviously it's not probably going to be all just agents. There's probably going to be a mix of stuff in there as well. But just to, you know, make sure as you move forward, cross your T's, dot your I's, just be a little bit more vigilant as you move about with your transactions. And if you can, I just, well... That's this thing for another thing, but I'm an advocate for going sovereign. So we can talk about that in later shows, but all right. And in the last couple of minutes, I mean, this bill is so massive. It's so much to call. We just wanted to touch on a couple of the main points though. The last thing I wanted to touch on is also the drug company bit in here where they're going to try to save $255 billion and the government's going to be negotiating drug prices. One thing you, a uh, uh, reason why I thought this was important, a while back, there were some firms that were basically going out and paying people for their insurance policy premium up front and then taking the policy and taking the payout at that. They were paying like a discount on the policy and then you sell the policy to them. They, they continue to pay the claim and they get the payout at the end of the, the, the useful life as long when you die and pass away. I imagine, you know, with the way this is structured, that there's going to be some provisions in here as well that people can take advantage of or something like that with negotiating drug prices. I saw that there was a cap that is going to be able to be at $2,000 for spending. So just from that alone, just capping a liability as a financier, <laughs> I just, oh man, I, I, I just, man, if I had, if I was at a firm right now, I, I could just be coming up with all kind of ideas. You got any thoughts for that or? Well, I would, I would actually flip this one to you. I feel like you're probably more in tune like to, to answer this just because of like your work experience and your background. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would flip it back to you and tell me what, what you think about this. Well, yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind, okay, so you've got a person who, you know, has a illness, right? And normally with an illness, when medical bills have been one of the biggest reasons for people to file bankruptcy or go into financial ruin. So now when you're capping that for an elderly person on how much they're going to be able to spend, I can now put a dollar value on, you know, that policy or that that person's, I guess, useful, I would say useful life, but for lack of a better word, you can 
you can put you, you know what the the spend will be so any income that you can derive above that now that you have a threshold on expense at two thousand dollars you can just come up with maybe you know some creative way to use their policy to make a profit off of right that's and right so and you, and uh -huh. with that being said, I just want to interject and say, this has been an amazing show. Thank you all for listening. Again, like we've said it, we'll say it again. We're not accountants. We're not financial advisors. Like, please check with your professionals before making any type of decision. These are just opinions of our own, like from our experiences, from, from our thoughts. And we're signing out. This has been Point of More Returns.